I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Retired fourth-generation farmer David Dukes of Bedford, Iowa, began no-tilling corn in the early 1980s and successfully converted to 100% no-till a few years later. His early experiences with figuring out how to make no-till work came in handy in the early 1990s when he took on the challenge of converting Conservation Reserve Program, or CRP, land back into production. Signed into law in 1985 by President Ronald Reagan, CRP provides rental payments to farmers for taking environmentally sensitive land out of production for a period of time. But Duke says that model can be problematic depending upon how the land is managed after being taken out of CRP. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, No-Till Farmer editor Frank Lesseter talks with Dukes about his approach to converting CRP ground, including why he says soybeans are a great crop to plant for the first year of production, and how he goes about terminating sod beforehand. He also talks about early experiments he did on carbon sequestration and rainfall simulations with the USDA, why he thinks CRP should be replaced with a soil renewal program, the importance of maintaining soil structure, and more. So, David, you live in Bedford, Iowa. Tell us a little about where that is in Iowa and what kind of operation you have down there. We're in southwest Iowa, very close to the Missouri line, and as Iowa goes, we tend to have the more erosive soils in the state. It's a little rougher terrain, but still, it's a beautiful country, and right now, everything is green. We've had some really great rains, and crops look good. So the flat land that we see across much of northern Iowa with corn and soybeans, you don't have that down there? (laughs) No. Jokingly, we are considered the armpit of Iowa. Uh Uh-oh. I've been to enough places around the world that I've learned to appreciate my soils that aren't as good as others, but no, we're not the flat land by any means. In fact, our topsoil is very thin and very erosive. Highly erodible land? Probably 95%, yeah. Wow, wow. Tell me a little about the family history. You're the fourth generation, right? I'm the fourth generation to live here and raise my family. My kids are the fifth, and my grandkids are the sixth. So that's a neat heritage that we have. And right now I've got a grandson that's looking to be part of the farming operation, so we're hoping that that continues. Well, that's great. My grandfather was one of six who lived here and raised his family here, and then my mother was one of six. In fact, my father was one of six. Wow. This family farm comes up through my mother's side of the family, but out of all of those six children, she was the last one to be on the farm, pretty much the only one to be on the farm. And so the farming heritage, I guess, channels down through my family pretty mm-hmm. much through me and my wife's kids. So how many acres in the farm today? How many are farming? Well, we have about 700 acres that we actually own, but mm-hmm. over the years we've cash rented a lot of other farm ground and pasture. So at one time we were around 2,000 acres of row crop plus a beef cow herd of around 150 head. And so over the years we raised hogs, but that stopped in 2004. Right. What are the main crops you got today? Well, we're doing corn and soybeans and then forage production for the cattle. And we still do feed the cattle that we raise. So we have a small feedlot and are able to market some of our corn through them and our forages. And we also raise cereal rye for a cover crop seed as well as straw. How do you market these steers? 
Well, we've been marketing them on a grade and yield basis right now. Uh, of all the market problems, grade and yield is not even offered. So it's on a hanging weight basis, stress yeah, weight basis. Right. But we've had good luck with that. So tell me the first time that you tried no-till. What year was it? Well, it was back in the early 80s. We had a John Deere 7000 planter, which had the rolling sure. disc openers. And Dad and I were walking through the field one spring, and the ground was mellow. And we looked at each other and said, why? Why do we need to till this ground? What will we gain? And we had a planter that would plant in it. So we started planting corn, no-till, in the mid to early 80s, and that was pretty much all that people would even think of no-tilling. Soybeans sure. is unthinkable at that time because of weed control. We did not mm-hmm. have the herbicides available, or nor did we know how to use them. And so we did that every other year, and then we'd follow corn production with heavy tillage and go back to beans. Sure. So we did a partial no-till, and I would say it was partially successful. We <laughs> raised some good crops, but we never saw a soil improvement. It wasn't until we did complete no-till that we started seeing changes in the soil and even more reduced erosion. When would you guess you went total no-till? We went total no-till the spring of 1990. Okay. And we went cold turkey. We actually even had a farm sale. We sold all of our tillage equipment. We bought a new no-till drill. We also bought a spray coop sprayer because we did not have a good quality spray machine. And we did a lot of research, and we were very successful. At that time, I remember the common theme in the coffee shops was, well, you can't do that. You can't plant soybeans in corn stalks. They won't grow. You can't control the weeds. And I think people were looking at our machinery thinking, well, they'll be selling it here in about two years when they go broke. And that turned out not to be the case. In fact, in two years later, instead of people saying it wouldn't work, they were asking us, which kind of no-trill drill would you recommend? Which one works the best? Yeah. That was the early 90s is when the adaption curve of no-till soybeans really increased dramatically. This is challenging, but we did do our research. We did our homework, and I give a lot of the credit to our success to a man you know well, and that's Jim Kinsella. Sure. I heard Jim speak at a conference of the Soil and Water Conservation Commissioners of Iowa back in the fall of 89. And I've been wanting to do this for some time, but I've never been able to find a system, the whole, all the pieces to the puzzle. And when Jim gave his presentation, why I could see very clearly that he had all those pieces in place. He was covering all the bases, and he had management technique to address weeds, to address equipment, seed, things like that. Right. And then I got to working with Jim very close over the next few years. That was really the key to our success, was following somebody's pattern, and then, of course, we built on it and adapted it to our own situation. It's funny when you look at the residue out there, because you look at the soybean residue, and you think, man, that would be easier to no-till corn into than it would be to no-till soybeans into this heavy corn stocks. But most people have found, I think, maybe you agree, maybe you're not, but it was easier to no-till into heavier residue like corn stalks than it was this little bit of residue of soybeans. I completely agree with that. Planting seed in those different residues takes a whole different approach. And in fact, I got to the place not too many years after that, that we went to a designated soybean planter and a designated corn planter. And we do Mm -hmm. that today. They basically are the same thing, but they're equipped in different ways with colders or without colders, residue movers, things like that. Why don't you walk us through each planter, what you think you got on them that are different? 
Well, we try to keep it as simple as possible. Our corn planter used to have colders. We got rid of those completely. All we have now is a good set of residue movers, just mm-hmm. enough to brush that residue off to the side. And then we use the double disc openers exclusively, and we've modified the closing wheels with some spoke wheels to do a better job of closing the trench. And that's worked well for us now that we have soils that are well structured. Early on, that was not the case. When we were going no-till every other year, it was a disaster. But Mm -hmm. even the first few years of complete no-till, we watched our soils slowly change. But very simple. And then we're using, starting this year, we're using a liquid fertilizer in the row. And it appears that that's been very helpful to us in a year like this, where we had cold soils early. The soybean planter is, again, a double-disc opener planter, 15-inch rows, and we do use a colder. I'm not sure it's very necessary. We do not use residue movers, and we just plant in corn stalks with as minimal amount of disturbance, and it works. works really well. I went back and pulled up a couple articles over the years about your operation, and at one time you weren't a big believer in starter fertilizer, right? Well, it wasn't <laughs> that I didn't believe in it. It was a difficult thing to okay. do. I grew up with granular starter fertilizer, and I found that as we started no-telling, it was actually causing us more planting problems than it was doing us good. It was creating a lot of soil movement. It was bringing up wet soils from underneath just before mm-hmm. the seed placement unit would come along. So we got rid of that at the time, but now we're going back because technology has changed drastically. Right. And we're using compatible fertilizers that can go right in the row. And of course, with all the technology, we've got variable volume control, things like that to handle it. Sure. And so I'm rethinking that. So earlier on, when you weren't putting on a starter on, you were putting most of it on side dressed? All the nitrogen was going on side dress, and then we, our P and K was put on dry, usually during the fall or the winter prior to the crop, and just let it naturally fill into the soil. All right. Still side dressing today? We still side dress, yes. We do variable rate according basically to yield and soil type. And we like that system really well as far as being able to utilize all our nitrogen. Uh, mm-hmm. This was a spring that right now we're being able to see a little difference between the corn that had strictly anhydrous, especially fall anhydrous, and then our side dressing. We feel like our system is a lot more efficient in a normal year. If it's extremely dry, and I mean extremely dry, probably the anhydrous is a little bit better just because it's placed deeper in the soil during those mm-hmm. dry spells. But right. We like our system, and we like to be able to variable rate on top of corn that we can actually see and see a yield potential for because right. of our stands. One of the things you pointed out in an early article is you said one of the best investments you ever made was a self-propelled sprayer, your spray coop at that time. That's true. I still believe that. I think for most farmers, I think a sprayer is as important as a tractor and a combine, owning that yourself. Being able to get out there at the right day, the right hour to spray and not have to wait for a custom applicator and being able to tweak some rates, I think we can save a lot of money by doing it ourselves and we can get out there during a more optimum time, maybe an evening when the wind is a little bit lower Things like that. We just have better control. Sure. And the sprayer has become the backbone of the farm anymore. That used to be that was a just kind of a luxury thing, but we're so dependent on chemicals now that it's. I think it's an essential tool. Right. 
Well, the fascinating thing to me is you hear people who have bought their own sprayers, and let's say they have a thousand acres and they're putting fifteen hundred or two thousand acres on their sprayer every year. I mean, having it available lets you think about doing other things like foliar or insect control or whatever you want to do. Yeah, and, and fungicides becoming a big issue too. So that's just another trip, or can be. Right. Using cover crops? We are. We've been using cereal rye for a number of years ahead of soybeans and corn. We're not putting on a cocktail of different species as such. Our latitude is just north enough that our growing season makes it tough to be able to put on some of the brassicas and the forbs after harvest. They just Mm -hmm. don't have time to develop before frost. But cereal rye has done a good job for us and it does what we need to do. It gives us ground cover, puts carbon in the soil, and controls erosion. One of the issues that we have had with cereal rye is a yield drag on the corn that's planted into it. And I've planted into short rye, tall rye, pre-killed rye, not killed rye. I've done a little of everything. But it seems like that's given us sometimes up to a 10 to 15 percent yield drag just because of the toxic effects between the two plants. We're hoping now with using a liquid starter that we can overcome a lot of that, but we just haven't had a chance to test that out yet. Yeah. In eastern Washington, the state, they've had something similar to this they call Greenbridge, and they think there's some problems in there. And I've had some Midwestern people wonder if they didn't have the same problems, but that was a big problem in the Palouse area. Yeah, and I'd really like to have a cover crop ahead of corn. I think it would help with early seedling emergence, early erosion control before that seedling actually gets a good root established. We get some heavy rains, and the way our ground rolls, it's very difficult to do a really good job of contouring. It seems like we're going up and down hills way more than we want to, and that's Mm -hmm. when we get that trench erosion from rain. Yeah, And the cereal rye really helps with that. So I'm hoping we can get that thing perfected to where it works well. But I'm a firm believer in cover crops. They do a great job. Right. Well, when I was growing up in Michigan, we were seeding cover crops in the late 40s and early 50s. And then somehow we all tended to get away from this over the years. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, commercial fertilizers did a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. We were looking at cover crops for a green manure for maybe a nitrogen fix to our soil. Right. And it did do that, but it also, by plowing the soil, why we lost a lot of carbon in the process. Right. So we paid a price for it. That's a term that's kind of gone away, green manure crops. But you're right, that's how we used to refer to them. You've done a lot of great things with no-till over the years. But one of the things that you did that really fascinated me was your CR program and how you made this work and how you thought we ought to no-till all this ground coming out of there. Can you elaborate on what you did early on? And I think what you did early on still applies today to CRP ground coming into production. Yes, it absolutely does. Back in the early 1990s, the first CRP 10-year contracts were just on the verge of expiring. In our county, because it is highly erodible, we had a substantial amount of CRP. And at that time, there had not been renewals or such. And my fear was that 10-year contracts would expire and people would put them immediately back into crop production, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But in order to do that, 
the only way that we knew how to do that was the moldboard plow at that time. And conservation tillage was not an option. It was a disaster because we have such a high amount of residue on that surface because it had never been harvested. So a chisel plow or a heavy plowing disc just created more problems than it solved. So it was going to go be plowed, and I had just gotten into no-till big time. I was promoting no-till because of soil erosion. That was the primary purpose at that time. And we just needed something better. And I had a good friend who had been converting set-aside acres from the farm program back into crop production through no-till by killing sod in the fall with herbicide. And we started putting some things together. Though why wouldn't that work with CRP? Just a few minutes ago, you mentioned the fear of planting in high residue. And we knew that soybeans got along really well with corn stalks in that high residue situation. And so we thought that would be a perfect crop for CRP for a first year production. And it turned out to be exactly right. Uh, soybeans work really, really well in high residue, such as CRP soils. And we came to the conclusion that it's a very simple uh, equation. You kill your sod in the fall and you plant soybeans. If you do those two things, you're very likely to succeed. If you try to kill sod in the spring, it becomes more difficult, yields drop, and it's harder to plant. But if you kill your sod in the fall and if you plant soybeans, it works. And it was a lot of fun to do that. We were doing some things that nobody in the United States had done. We got a lot of attention because of that. Sure. And I guess the most rewarding thing is that it was adapted and adopted by most farmers. I very seldom see sod plowed under anymore. When I do, I kind of lose my mind, but still. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. You can be proud of something you got going here that really protected the soil. We'll get back to Frank and David Dukes in a moment, but I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin-Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to Frank's conversation with David Dukes, here's Frank with a little known no-till farmer fact. Today we're going to take a trip some different places and we're going to start off with Hawaii. We had a no-till conference in Hawaii way back in 1973, but what's interesting is several of the tips from that conference still hold as true today as they did nearly five decades ago. Two men are key to your success with no-till is what Harry Young of Herndon, Kentucky told the people who was the first farmer to really try no-till in the U.S. That's the man on the planter and the man on the sprayer, as these two operations have the biggest impact on your net income with no-till. Someone from Ohio, Joy Apple of Signet, Ohio, said most no-till corn problems in our area are due to poor stands. Then Bill Good, who was a veteran no-till grower and an Alice Chalmers dealer from Marshall, Michigan, pointed out that we've been successfully aerial seeding wheat and cover crops in our no-till program for years. And then former University of Maryland agronomist Joe Newcomer pointed out, many first-time no-tillers leave seed on the top of the ground instead of getting it down where it belongs in the no-till slot. 
So looking back even five decades ago, there's some good advice in there from four people who were at that 1973 conference in Hawaii. Let's get back to the program now as David Dukes talks about the importance of midsummer mowing. Early on, you had a four-point program. You talked about midsummer mowing. You still think that's essential? Yeah, I said we need to kill sod in the fall and we need to plant soybeans. Now, around that, there's ways that enhance that. And I think managing your crop, managing your CRP is one way. And the late summer mowing does do a good job of taking care of some brush, taking care of some weeds, and getting your residue back to a, a little more manageable size in the fall. It also tends to create better plant growth early in the fall, say the October time period when we would like to kill in this area. And I just think it's helpful. It does a better job. Plus, it gets you out on the field. You can see what problems might have developed over 10 years that you really didn't see because of all the grass and then the forage. It's a good management tool. It's not expensive. And beyond that, it pretty well takes care of itself. In the fall, you were doing a fall burn down with 2,4-D and Roundup. Is that still what you would recommend today? It is. It's just a really simple and very cheap burn down. You don't have to have anything fancy. And I think people tend to get in too big a hurry to do that in the fall. Mm-hmm. At least in Iowa, people think, well, it's the 1st of September, I need to get that killed. Well, no, because you've got growing season. Right. You've got a plant that's actively growing, putting carbon in your soil, building roots, And that can go on for another month, maybe two months. A lot of times those plants are growing up into uh, December. So I personally like to put it off as long as I can, even after the first killing frost, I think is a great time to do it. About two years ago, my tenant had a farm that we were bringing out of CRP, and he got busy and didn't get the spraying done. And it was (laughs) late November, and the grass looked like it was half dead. So he said, well, I'm not going to burn that down this year because it won't do any good. And I looked at him and I said, yes, you will. (laughs) You are going to burn that down and it will do some good. So reluctantly, he went ahead and sprayed it. And he did miss just a little bitty corner somewhere in the field. Yeah. And he came back this next spring and he says, oh, man, I'm sure glad you made me spray that. (laughs) Right. Well, it's a good he missed the corner, so he had something to compare it to. It did. And you think the plants are half dead, and maybe they are, but even though they may not look like they completely die, you make them so sick that they can't survive the winter. Right. And having the plant die that early when the growing season's over and being able to decay and kind of fall apart during the winter and the spring really helps the planting situation a lot. So when would you plant soybeans into this ground? May 1 or a little later or what? Again, I would not get in a hurry. The ground stays cooler longer than most other crop acres because it's got a very substantial insulation on top of it. So I would tend not to plant the soybeans on CRP until at least I've got all my corn planted. Uh, May 1 would be probably as early as I'd want to go out. Okay. And every year is different, but in my area, I think that May 1 is kind of a good ballpark figure. So let's say you planted soybeans on May 1. When would you do your spring burn down? And you think, is it was it critical to do both one in the spring and the fall? Yes. I think you do the fall burn down, and from that point on, you treat it like all your other soybean acres. Do a pre-plant burn down. And if you're waiting till May 1 or even May 10th, that allows any escaped forages to start growing again, and you've got a really good chance to get them before you plant. And with the advent of Roundup Ready Bean, 
means that's changed everything, the ability to reach back and kill missed forages in growing soybeans. And that's one thing we forget how fast technology has come. But when we started doing these trials in 94 and 95, and it wasn't until 96, we had Roundup Ready beans at our disposal. But we were doing this with non-Roundup Ready seed. And so we didn't have a chance to kill perennial grasses like brome or orchard grass, things like that, which were common seed treatments with any herbicide that we had and do a good job on it. We didn't have Roundup is what I'm saying. Now that we do have Roundup, you've got a second and a third chance. So that burn down is probably not as critical as it was at that time, but I think it's still very important. Yeah. Now, you did some measurements of changes in organic matter. Can you talk about that a little? When we did our test plots, we were doing three things. We were trying to see what no-till in fall-killed sod looked like. We were going to see what no-till looked like in spring-killed sod, and then we compared that with traditional tillage, which was the moldboard plow. What we saw when we maintained the sod, whether it was spring or fall killed, we maintained the carbon content of the soil, that whatever was there, we once the bean crop went through its season, we still maintained that carbon. But when we plowed that soil, we reduced that carbon substantially. And when we went back into a corn-soybean rotation in tilled soil and kept it in tillage, we were never able to recover that carbon. Where we kept the soil in a no-till situation, though, with a corn and soybean rotation, we were able to retain pretty much all the carbon that had been built through the 10 years of CRP. So that was pretty eye-opening for a lot of people, including myself. Well, the couple hot words today are carbon and carbon sequestration, but my gosh, you were thinking about carbon in the 90s or earlier. Yeah, I didn't know much about it. I was learning, and I was very fortunate. When we did this project, we had some of the best people in the United States. We had the USDA soil research people from the National Soil Tilt Lab in Ames, from a research station in Morris, Minnesota, Don Rakoski. We had people from Lincoln, Nebraska, John Power, John Gilly did rainfall simulation. These are really great people. And they were thrilled to come here because even as USDA scientists, the government regulations on actual CRP ground would not allow them to do research. Wow, I don't remember that. We were the first place in the United States that they could go out on a real CRP field under normal conditions and do research, do soil research. And they did all kinds of things. They did percolation tests. They did earthworm counts, carbon erosion, just on and on and on. And we got such good information from them. And I learned so much about soil carbon, soil porosities, the structure, the tilth of the soil. And it was really fun. I just can't believe I was able to do that. It was like going to the Harvard of agriculture schools. <laughs> right. Well, you talked about the rainfall simulation and tell us a little about what everybody learned from this on the CRP land. Well, it was staggering. Visually, you could see that, yes, you're not going to lose as much soil if the sod remains in place. But John Gilley brought this rainfall simulator over from Lincoln and he was putting on, I think it was 3.74 inches over an hour's duration. And he had the ability to measure the gallons of surface runoff and the silt that came with it. And uh, here I'm doing this from memory on the phone, but I recall that that in our sod fields, we had three to 400 pounds per acre equivalent of soil coming off. That's pounds per acre. And then when we compared that to what had been fall plowed or spring plowed, either one, then the soil erosion amount rose to nearly 10 tons, over 20,000 pounds per acre of soil 
movement, soil loss. And it doesn't take much of a brain surgeon to figure out that that is just unbelievably large. Then you start putting those numbers into how many tens or hundreds of thousands of acres that this affected, and it became a really big deal. And just also the amount of water infiltration. In our plowed soils, we were having more water runoff on a big rain than in our no-till fields. And I think it was common understanding that plowed fields would absorb more water when, in fact, the opposite is true. They absorb Mm -hmm. more water initially, but over the long term, they absorb much, much less. All right. You've got a lot of experience with CRP. What do you think of the program today? What Are we doing okay? Do we need to make some changes? You got some recommendations or what? Put you on the spot here. (laughs) That's fine. I have never owned an acre of CRP in my life. We've never put any of our farm in CRP, so it qualifies. It would probably have been smarter if I had. But I have gotten a lot of farms to rent that were in CRP, so I have converted hundreds of acres myself. I've always felt the CRP program was a very poor program because of how it addressed the erosion issue and the soil quality issue. Basically, what CRP has done is said, uh, we will rent your ground, you will put it in forage, the soil erosion will cease, and supposedly wildlife habitat will increase, therefore the problem solved. And that's in fact true for 10 years. And then in year 11, if and when that CRP contract expires and it goes back into crop production, At least before no-till, we were going right back to doing exactly the same things we were, and therefore we reduced soil erosion for 10 years, but we didn't solve any problems. Several years ago, I proposed at a conference kind of a soil renewal plan instead of a conservation program. And what that would be involved in, instead of having a 10-year plan, let's have a 5-year plan. We will pay the same price per acre. But during that five years, conservation practices would be not only allowed, but encouraged. In other words, those fields would qualify for cost share assistance to put in terraces or tiling. Or, first of all, you would start the five years that you had a plan what you were going to do with it in year six when it came out of the program. It could be pasture, it could be a tree lot, or it could be crop production, whatever you want. And we would spend those five years addressing the problems on that particular field to make it usable and prepared for whatever plan you had. So in year six, if I'm going to plant corn, good, I've got my terraces and my tiles in place. I had five years of really good soil progress as far as uh, changing my structure, and it would no-till well at that time. And therefore, I would have a really good instant no-till cornfield or bean field. Or at the end of five years, I could put it in forage. I would have pasture. I could have a uh, maybe a watering system in that or whatever I needed, or it would be in trees, whatever. But anyway, do a program that actually solves some problems. And I think it gets so much more conservation for our money if we did something like that. Yeah. Well, what you talk about is 10 years and then plowing this down, I think we see some similarities today that could happen with carbon sequestration. If I'm a no-tiller and maybe I sell carbon credits for 10 years and then I sell the farm to somebody else who comes in and plows or does a lot of tillage, the question is, did we lose all the benefits of the carbon sequestration we had for 10 years? And pretty much the answer is yes. Right. With one plowing, we've lost the soil structure. We've lost an enormous amount of the carbon that was put in the soil. And it's like we were saying early on, starting no-till is difficult. You're starting with a 
soil that has a tillage structure, which means it has no structure. Sure. It takes time. It takes years to build that structure. What I saw in CRP was that we've had 10 full years of undisturbed soil structure building with all this sod and forages that's on there. It was a perfect situation to change soil. And if we plowed at one time, we would roll back that entire 10 years and start at ground zero again right. and have to take probably this time five to seven years before it would even begin to regain that good structure that we already had. That's a pretty foolish thing to do in my mind, and it's a very important thing to lose. I just think it's crazy and unfortunate that people would do that. Yeah. So you and I are getting up in age. You're kind of, uh, you retired or are you still active in the farm or what? I am officially retired. I have a young man that has taken over my operation. I still live on the farm and I still assist quite often, but not all the time by any means. When they're shorthanded, I'm glad to help, but I'm also glad to let him take over things and do the management, and I'm just very happy with that. Well, that's great. It looks to me like you're still kind of active when you tell him in December he's going to burn down this CRP ground or cover crop ground. Well, he's really nice to me. He, he still asks questions every once in a while, and uh, I try to give him good advice. So. <laughs> And that no-till is kind of one of the, the things that I do have some experience on. So, yeah, he's been really good. But you know, I try to keep him from making some mistakes, and that would have been a big one, I think. But he's been fun to work with. Well, I really great, enjoy that right? part. Have you really increased no-till acres in your area of southwest Iowa? Yes. I don't have figures on it. Sure. I know they've increased substantially. One of the things that has slowed that down is the advent of all this vertical tillage. Yeah. People get kind of excited about that. I think vertical tillage is very oversold and detrimental. It is tillage, and it does lose carbon. It does deteriorate soil structure to a certain extent. It's not a deep tillage, but people have to remember that we need that soil structure right on the very surface, not just six or eight inches down or below that. That right. surface soil is the most critical. Well, you go back 20 years ago, and you had some farmers that were using a rotary harrow, which made sense on some farms, but that kind of got replaced by vertical tillage. But it seems to me that there's a lot more tillage with vertical tillage than there was with rotary harrows. I think so. And I still see a rotary harrow go by once in a while. But I don't see the tillage come out so much until we maybe we have a wet year and they're trying to dry out some ground to get planted. And again, I feel like you're doing way more damage than good to your soil, compaction-wise and soil structure rises. So from the beginning, people that I worked with, people that I know that were some of the pioneers in no-till, patience was one of the things that they said was a virtue. Right, patient. Right, Wait, right. don't get in such a hurry. It'll be okay. <laughs> Don't go out there and mess things up. And I think that's still really good advice. I always remember back in the 70s, I was down, stayed in Illinois someplace, and I mentioned to the guy, he had both round storage and flat storage for his corn, and I said, where do you put your corn first? And he says, I put it in the back corner of my flat storage because there's a moldboard plow back there, and I dumped the first load right over the moldboard plow. <laughs> so when others are fall plowing, I don't have the urge to do it, or I can't. <laughs> 
Well, I think that's why we had a farm sale. I didn't know it at the time, but when we, the first year that we no-tilled, it was really hard because it was a damp year. The soil didn't dry out really well, and especially yeah. since I did not disturb it. And I wanted so bad to go out there with the field <laughs> cultivator and just scratch across it one time to dry it out. Because yeah. my neighbors could plant and I could not. Yeah. So not having that machinery in sight or being available would be a great thing to do. That's a good way to prepare for your spring work. Right, Hide right. this tillage equipment. Right. How are you killing your cover crops in the spring? Are your cereal rye? Oh, we're just throwing some Roundup on them. Nothing fancy. Well, you mentioned beef cattle. One of the hot things today in no-till is doing corn in 60-inch rows with cover crops and forage in between and then running beef cattle or lambs out on that. But one of the problems is that so many people tore their fences out. <laughs> yeah, that's a very big problem in our area. We don't have near the cow herds that we did. And a lot of these farms that got thrown into CRP, people have just pretty much turned their back on the zero maintenance and upkeep. When the 10 years comes out, even though it should be grazing, the fences are gone. Right. And especially the absentee landlords are unwilling to spend the money on the fence. So yeah. it's been hard to maintain livestock in this area. Right. Hey, this has been great. You did a fantastic job and covered a lot of great stuff. And I think all this early work you did on CRP land made a huge difference. Well, I do too. I'm not bragging, but it did. <laughs> it gave us a new option, and I have been really pleased to see how it was adapted or adopted really well. And it makes everything's so much easier and cheaper. We've got better first-year crops, and it just costs far less to convert that with herbicide than with tillage. There's no comparison, and the soil savings are very visible. Right. Well, you got to do what I do once in a while, and that's reach back behind your shoulder and pat yourself on the back. <laughs> well, I have what I call my brag book, and it's a big, one of those three-inch loose-leaf sure. folders that has all the farm articles and things that I was involved right. in, including no-till farmer and things like that. All right. You do forget about what all you've done when you get to be a few years older. You forget how fast, well, time flies so quickly. But right. every once in a while, I'll look at that, and I just kind of can't believe we did all that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, no, it's been but great. It, it's been very rewarding, and I, yeah. I feel very blessed to have been a part of it. And I, I really appreciate all those people. I can't say enough good things about the sponsors. I won't say sponsors. They were partners. USDA, Successful Farming, Monsanto, the seed companies. We had Yetter involved and a lot of those guys and they just were so helpful and really made the thing work well. Yeah. We had you a few times as a speaker at the National Noltoge Conference. So you always right. did a great job and we we'll always appreciate what you did for our attendees. Well, thank you. It was an honor to be part of it, Frank. I okay. really enjoyed it. All right. We'll wrap this up, but take care and I appreciate you doing this for me. Well, sure. Well, it's good to talk to you. Okay, bye. bye. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. I got an email a week ago from Marie Bartz, and she is a professor at a university in Portugal at this time, and she's also a professor at a university in Brazil. And one of the things that she was asking about was whether I could find something that we had written way back in 1973 about her father, who was Herbert Bartz from Brazil. 
and her dad was among the first growers to pioneer no-till in Latin America and has used it continuously since starting no-till in 1972. What she was looking for was a little thing we did on how no-till trials can lead to adoption and it goes back to Glover Triplett who spent part of that year consulting with researchers and farmers in this area of Brazil. And Bartz had started no-tilling in 1972 and he had consulted with Kentucky no-till pioneer Shirley Phillips and Harry Young and he liked double cropping so well that he ordered two six-row no-till planters and had them shipped to Brazil. As Triplett pointed out, soybeans grown in this area of Brazil will yield 50 to 60 bushel per acre, and growers plan to use an overall spray of 2,4-D sometime before planting to kill the broadleaf species, and Paraquat plus a residual herbicide at planting time. And they were planning to post-directed sprays of Paraquat if necessary. But it showed how no-till got started in South America, particularly with soybeans being double cropped behind wheat. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and David Dukes for today's discussion, and thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about No-Till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at nutillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at Nuttall Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.